Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 26 of The Essential X-Lapsed, where I'm getting this recording in a bit early. Uh, stop me if you heard this one. I've got um, several hours of fairly invasive dental work to be done uh, a little bit later on today. And so, uh, gotta make sure I get this done before that, because I don't know if I'll be able to speak after that. Not that I, not that I speak all that well uh, regularly... But it's probably still a pretty good idea to get it out of the way before uh, I'm, you know, torn open about the uh, the mouth, gums, and uh, jaw. <laughs> um, it'll also provide me with a little bit of a distraction here. I'm a little nervous, uh, not only because uh, this is going to be rather painful, but uh, I'm a little bit nervous about what they might find once they uh, once they're in there. It's probably not going to be anything, you know, too terrible, but. Uh, you know, you always have that uh, that fear in the back of your mind here, and uh, yeah, I've I've got some of that. And while on that subject, I guess a, a programming note or a possible programming note, uh, depending on uh, my ability to speak for any length of time after today, I'm not sure what the next episode's going to be. Uh, we might call an audible. Uh, me and Mr. Bailey do have an episode of Questerdays in the in the uh, hopper, so. I might uh, play with the schedule a little bit. That's supposed to come out Sunday, but if uh, I'm unable to speak or perform <laughs> the next episode, uh, I might uh, I might play with the schedule a little bit, but uh, shouldn't miss a day. Hopefully we won't miss a day, especially this close to one year of uh, daily shows here, but uh, I guess we'll play it by ear. And with all that out of the way, let's get into today's book here. Now, this is X-Men number 19 which has an April 1966 cover date. The story's called Low, Now Shall Appear the Mimic. Written and edited by Stan Lee, this is his uh, swan song. This is his final issue as a scripter of the X-Men. Next issue will bring in Roy Thomas. Pencils, Werner Roth as Jay Gavin. Inks, Dick Ayers. Letters, Artie Simic. Colors, we might actually have a colorist here, um, because Stan says everything else is by Irving Forbush. So uh, I'm guessing maybe Irv Forbush is our colorist. If not, I mean, it's a it's good enough guess, I suppose. And this issue had a 12-cent cover price. Now, this one has a fairly iconic cover. I suppose if you're an X-Men fan, you probably would recognize this one. This, of course, has the mimic on the cover, front and center. And he's basically the X-Men's version of the Super Scroll. You know, he's got each of the X-Men's powers and uh, a horrifyingly ugly costume. So uh, there's that as well. Let's get into the issue. Now we open with a danger room training session, and uh, hey, you know I usually give him a little bit of guff for this, but it's actually been a little while since we've seen one of these, so I, you know, I guess we'll allow it, or at least it feels like it has been. Anyway, we've got Professor S directing traffic here. Cyclops is uh, overseeing the endeavor. Uh, we got the barefoot beast balancing on a beam while brandishing a ball with his bare feet. Iceman hurls his frosty toothpick at a target as though it were a javelin. Angel, uh, well, he flies around, uh, probably trying to avoid nets, since that's kind of all he does. Marvel Girl reads, while TKing a copy of Monsters Unlimited. <gasps> Would someone please buy Monsters Unlimited already so Stan can stop mentioning it, please? D do, do me a favor, you know, 60 years in the future. Now, as our Danger Room scenarios are known to go... Things quickly devolve down into horseplay. Uh, Angel swoops down, which knocks Bobby's dart off target. And so, Bobby chucks a mess of ice flakes into Angel's face. 
and then the pair face off like they're going to do something about it. Until Cyclops blasts Iceman's frosty rod to bits. And the boys decide to settle their tea kettles, at least for now. Off to the side, the barehanded beast attempts to dazzle her crew by walking on one hand across his trapdoor obstacle. Cyclops warns him against this, but Hank cannot be deterred. Now, he winds up triggering a trap, which hurls... I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a sack of dirty laundry into the air? I don't know. Well, Beast, he catches it with his feet. He kicks it past Angel, knocks the monster's unlimited mag out of Jean's telekinetic grip, and then nearly hits Cyclops in the dome. But... Thankfully, Scott has his cursed optic blasts to protect him. Now, Professor X watched this whole scene play out, and rather than hand out demerits like Halloween candy, he applauds his students for their work in tandem. He then delivers a special announcement. And, uh, well, stop me if you've heard this one before. He's going to reward the X-Men with a vacation. I mean, didn't we, like, just do that? Oh, well. Now, Cyclops, he seems a bit down, because, well... He has no life outside the X-Men. Bobby and Hank, they rush out to wherever they're going to go, on an ice slide, which Jean declares that she will not clean up after when it melts. Now, that tells you a lot about Jean's role on the team and in the house, doesn't it? That's kind of unfortunate. Angel suggests that he and Scott head out on a double date. And I don't know how this would work, considering there's just one girl here and they both have the hot pants for her. maybe, Maybe Scott will invite the professor. Well, then that would be even worse for Jean now, wouldn't it? Anyway, let's stop thinking about that scenario immediately. And instead, let's go rejoin Bobby and Hank, who, surprisingly enough, are not headed to the Coffee of Go-Go. Because, you see, it's Zelda's day off from the coffee shop, so young Master Drake has no reason to pop in for a cup. Instead, they're headed to the New York Public Library for a double date of their own. Now, Bobby, he's going to be with Zelda, of course. And Hank... Well, he's going to be with Zelda's friend. So, once inside the library, Hank immediately gets into an argument with the cute young librarian on duty. Any guesses where this is headed? Well, if you were to guess that this cute young librarian was going to wind up being Hank's blind date, well, then you win the pony. Zelda shows up and introduces the CYL as her bestie, Vera. Now, Vera, the first time I ever met Vera, was during the late 80s X-Factor run, where she had gone from, like, the mousy bookworm that she is here to a, like, weirdo new wave 80s punk. <laughs> very, very bizarre. Like, partially shaved head, the big sunglasses. It, it like, kind of looked like one of the mutants from Dark Knight Returns. Uh, at least that's what I can remember <laughs> of it. Uh, I could be completely mistaken and conflating, but uh, that's what I remember. Anyway, once the dramatic dust settles, the foursome head out to go on their date. Outside, they run afoul of local douchebag, the pink-faced Calvin Rankin. So, uh, if Irving Forbush is the colorist, he's not a great colorist, is he? Now, here's the thing. Old Rankin's got the hot pants for Vera and will not take no for an answer. Because, you see, she once helped him locate a book at the library about mine engineering, which will come up again later. And ever since, old Cal's been hooked on her. Beast steps in, he literally suns Rankin, he calls him son, and then gets punched for his trouble. Then, it's on. Hank and Cal literally bounce around the sidewalk, attempting to land blows on one another. And our man Hank is bamboozled that this jerk seems to be able to keep up with his own dexterity. 
Now, he's so shocked by this that it opens up the opportunity for Cal to deliver a dropkick to the back of his head. Now, it's worth noting Cal removed his shoes at some point. He's sock-footed. Okay. Now, Bobby attempts to intervene, and Cal winds up thwapping him in the mush with a snowball. But, 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 but how can this possibly be? Huh. Maybe we'll find out in a little bit. But first, some nearby construction workers watch this entire scene play out, and they proceed to rush old Rankin, accusing him of being a dirty, stinking mutant. Cal then erects an ice shield uh, and escapes by running up the wall of a nearby building. Now, Bobby, he just kind of stands there in awe. He's not sure what he'd just seen. He does comment on the mob scene, however. He cites that it's exactly what Professor X said would happen. And uh, not for nothing, I mean... Didn't the same scene play out for he and Hank back in X-Men number 8? So this really shouldn't be any sort of surprise, though I suppose readers of the day might have needed the reminder. Atop the building, we rejoin Calvin, who deduces, since he was able to mimic their powers, that, well, he probably just ran into two members of the X-Men. And he vows to find the rest of the X-Men and put an end to them altogether. For, uh, reasons, I guess. Anyway, it turns out, as uh, he goes further and further from Hank and Bobby, his mimicked powers wear off. So, the gimmick is that he's got to be in close proximity to the X-Men, or whoever's powers he's trying to swipe, in order to, you know, swipe those powers. Later on, we head to the mall where Jean Grey is shopping, because, uh, well, girls be shopping, y'all. She accidentally bumps into a certain pink-faced cretin who snaps at her for her clumsiness even going so far as to suggest that he'd belt her one if she weren't a female. He then sits down and realizes that he can now move things with his mind. That's a pretty convenient, and of course this pink-faced cretin is uh, Calvin Rankin, uh, and he has just run into Marvel Girl of the X-Men. So, uh, well, what a day for him. Now, back at the mansion, Bobby and Hank explain their experience to the professor, Now, Charles is a little bit confused, seeing as though Cerebro didn't pick up on there being any sort of new mutant around. To which it's like, um, well, maybe because Magneto melted Cerebro last issue? Uh, Could that be it? Uh, Nah, let's not not even worry about that. Uh, Hank wonders aloud if uh, perhaps Cerebro might need some uh, fine-tuning, which seems to deeply offend the professor. He's like, how dare you? (laughs) How dare you question the good name of Cerebro, Uh, even though... Like we said, it was melted, last issue. If, if there was something wrong with it, I guess we could accept it, because it was melted. Anyway, just then, the doorbell obnoxiously rings, and outside the door is an equally obnoxious idiot. It's Calvin Rankin, hat in hand. Well, bag in hand. Um, because he's here, because he would like to do two things. He would like to apologize to the X-Men for his uh, transgressions and his uh, jerkishness. And he would also like to join the X-Men. Hmm. Once inside, Cal is introduced to the rest of our uncanny teens. And it's worth noting, he's wearing smoked glasses to hold back his mimicked optic blasts. And, uh, hmm. You guys know me. I suppose we could get stuck on this bit. And I could spend however long I need to to talk about the importance of ruby quartz. But how about we just play along? Because uh, that ain't gonna get us nowhere And it'll only serve to frustrate us even more Uh, Hopefully, maybe in the letters page Five or six issues down the line Someone will mention this And uh, it'll be uh, no prized And we can just accept whatever answer comes Anyway, Cal shakes hands with Angel And he suddenly feels wings begin to sprout from his back 
Cal then goes to formally apologize to Bobby and Hank, but, uh, well, they ain't buying it. Professor X admonishes them for being inhospitable to their guest. Stan Lee's minutes later later, Cal has retired to his room upstairs, while the rest of the X-Men fret over what this all might mean. Because A, he knows who they are, and B, now he's a member of their team? What's up with that? Well, let's head upstairs and check in on our uh, newest X-Man as he introduces himself to his body. Let's get our minds out of the gutter, gang. That's uh, not what I mean. He first removes his shoes, revealing his newly engorged feet. He then removes his shirt and girdle, revealing his newly budded wings. From here, he changes into his dork suit and heads back downstairs to reveal his true intentions. You see, he's here to defeat the X-Men. Why? Who knows? So, it's probably worth noting here that not only does Cal have all the powers of the X-Men, but also Professor X's mental abilities as well which makes him quite the formidable foe, um, who, over the course of the next three or so pages, the X-Men are going to absolutely trounce. Wow, that was quick. Um, Now, you know, if not for the stupid name, stupid costume, stupid character, this guy might have been a top-tier X-Men baddie moving forward. I mean, as mentioned, he's basically the X-Men's version of the Super Scroll, um, though sadly he's about as interesting as the Super Scroll as well. So yeah, the X-Men take turns beating up Cal Rankin until he's just laid prone before them. But then he gets up, he nabs Marvel Girl, and runs off. Cyclops goes to stop him, but... Xavier orders him to back off. We jump to Stan Lee double time later, which is, of course, seconds later, where the Mimic is speeding away from the mansion in his hoopty with Jean in the passenger seat. The X-Men follow from above in their X-Copter, which I'd like to remind you all just took off from... Professor Xavier's backyard, so... Anyway, you know, it would probably be so much more helpful if the X-Men had a member of their team who could fly, right? Hmm, if only. Anyway, they follow our baddie all the way down to a mineshaft. Remember, he did borrow a book on mine engineering, so it is all coming together. Now, as they enter, Jean notices that Cal's body no longer resembles the beasts, and also, he no longer has wings. So, uh, what's up with that? Huh, so... Together they head deep into the mine, all the way to some, uh, well, fairly mundane-looking living quarters. It looks like a, like a house or an apartment, just deep underground. Now it's here that Calvin Rankin will share the secret origin of the Mimic. Because why not? We got pages to fill. So into flashback land we go. Calvin's father was a scientist, and we know this because the first image we see of him has him pouring the contents of a test tube into a beaker. That's kind of what they do. Now, Cal, as a boy, was still an asshole. So one day, while screwing around in his dad's lab, he knocked over a beaker, which expelled a gas which he breathed in. And from that point on, he was a most changed boy. Now, he was suddenly able to beat up the school's boxing champion. I I don't remember my school having a boxing champion. Anybody listening uh, go to a high school that had a boxing league? I'd like to hear from you. What's more, uh, Cal just became like an all-around great athlete and scholar. And his classmates grew to be quite jealous. And naturally, that jealousy blossomed into... Fear and hate. Now, Calvin's father figured things out pretty quickly. After all, the son he knew and tolerated was a complete loser. So there had to be some sort of explanation as to why he was suddenly so good at everything. Or anything. So they moved into this abandoned mine shaft in order to try and study this change. 
Cal's pops said uh, he said that they were going to do this in order to make his mimicking powers permanent. As in, he would work towards making it so it wouldn't matter the proximity that he's into someone who's actually talented or smart, right? So he would just get these powers, and he would never lose them, despite how far he might be from wherever he got the powers from. And, you know, Cal hears this, and he is just all about it. Now, here's the thing. Together, they built a machine to accomplish this task. But the machine caused such a drain on local power that it made them, well, basically public enemies number one and two. Now, the town would track them down and attack with shotguns. I mean, they find the mineshaft. They, they see that their power is waning, right? Their, their, their electricity's going out. They just don't have any power in this town. And they're able to somehow triangulate the power suck to um, the Rankin family. So, I don't know. So, yeah, they're there with shotguns. Uh, Cal's dad decides to seal off the entrance to the mine in order to keep the unruly mob of armed fear and haters out. Only the explosion that's set to keep them out, well, it wound up killing him. It, it did seal the entrance, so that was a, a success, but it also killed him. So Cal would go on to do his best Kane Marco impression and spend the next little while digging himself out of the rubble. Once out, it looks like he gave his father a formal funeral, all by his lonesome, and he vows at his father's grave that he would unearth the machine and go on to become the mightiest man in the world. And, uh, well, that's where the X-Men came into his plan, Jean Grey specifically. Because once the X-Men find the mine, Cal will swipe their powers again and dig out the machine so he can be permanently powered up. And so, uh, moments later, the X-Men approach the mine. Now, Cal can tell that they're coming because his wings have begun to grow back, so he is in close proximity to the Angel. And so he heads deeper into the mine, and through mimicking of Cyclops, Beast, and Professor X's powers, he is able to locate and unearth the magical mystery machine. Now the X-Men enter the mine, and uh, just as Cal is about to pull the lever in order to empower himself forever, Cyclops blasts it in two. Cal responds by erecting an ice wall, which, I mean, that like never works when Kid Cool does it, right? Well, Cal proves to be just a little bit smarter than our favorite 16-year-old, because not only does he erect this massive wall, he then topples it over on top of the X-Men, which is like... The best thing you could do, probably, right? Cal then nabs Professor X and rushes to the machine. The remaining X-Men manage to pull themselves together, and then they go in for an attack, but once again, Xavier tells them not to. He's like, hey, stay your course, stay stay over there. <laughs> Don't mess with this. Uh, Cal puts on this, like, stupid helmet that's attached to the machine, flips a switch, and then is suddenly bathed in electricity. After that passes, he slumps to the ground. Xavier orders the X-Men to get everybody outside because things are about to blow. Angel grabs Charles, and uh, Hank's got the mimic. Once outside, the mine explodes. And here, the professor explains the situation. Now you see, here's the thing. Calvin's daddy, well, he wasn't trying to give his son permanent powers with this machine. He was actually trying to take his mimic ability away. And so, now that Cal, you know, did the thing, he no longer has the power to mimic. Then, one mind wipe later, and everybody's back to normal. Calvin Rankin doesn't have any powers, and he hasn't the foggiest idea who the X-Men really are. So, bada-bing, bada-boom, praise be to the professor once again, and we are out of here. Thus ends the uh, Stan Lee scripting era. Next time out, we introduce Stan's boy Roy to the uh, scripting seat, and uh, we meet us uh, some more X-Men imposters. So, 
hope you're all looking forward to that. But, uh, well, we should we should probably talk about this issue, huh? Um, I tell you what, uh, I write a lot of scripts, right? I've written hundreds and hundreds of scripts to perform on the air here. It's with these essential episodes, the the bit of the script, my, my bullet points where I'm going to discuss what happens in the issue, I feel like that's been the most challenging bit of... Uh, of writing that I've ever had to do for this sort of project here. And I mean, I've got thousands of blog posts where I've done basically the same thing just in written format. But here, it's like, what do you say, right? I mean, there's only so many times I could say, this was silly Silver Age stuff, I had fun with it, but it's, you know, it doesn't really hold up. It's not something I can analyze, really. Uh, it was very convenient. I mean, how many times can I say that without it just being like, oh, well, this is what Chris is going to say about every single issue. But, I mean, that said, that's uh, kind of what it is, right? I mean, this felt like it could have been any interchangeable Silver Age story where we get the uh, the one-and-done villain who appears to be unbeatable until he's beaten within, like, two or three pages. It's nothing we haven't seen before, and it's nothing that we won't see again. And I get that this is, you know, Stan's swan song as scripter here, so it's not like he's going to kick off a three- or four-part story, even though I feel like the character of the Mimic, had he not been so corny, <laughs> um, might have been able to uh, shoulder a longer uh, story arc here. I mean, we got two uh, issues out of the Juggernaut, we got three out of the Sentinels. I think the Mimic, who has all the powers of the X-Men, including the powers of Professor X, could have uh, could have been a longer-term villain here. And, I mean, we will be seeing the Mimic again, right? He's not actually going anywhere. He'll be here as a friend. He'll be here as a foe. He'll be, he'll be in and out. He'll be a mutant. Then he'll not be a mutant. Then he'll be a mutant again. Then he'll not be a mutant. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get silly. <laughs> it's going to get very silly. But for this introduction to him, and, of course, this has hindsight, right? Um, when Stan introduced the Mimic here in 1966... He may have been always intended to be a one-and-done. Uh, this is before continuity was really... Well, it was continuity, of course, but lore was still something that was very new. Uh, the X-Men were barely three years old at this point, so the concept of digging deep into lore to, uh, to inform future stories was really not so much a thing at this point. So, for all we know, Stan was like, okay, there's a one-and-done, he's got no powers, he's got no memory, he's done now. And it wasn't until the fans turned pro got involved in the industry where we started to really dredge the uh, the more obscure characters and bring them back into the forefront. So that makes it even harder to criticize this story because all I'm criticizing is based on hindsight and knowing where these characters are going to head, knowing what... I mean, the Mimic's not a huge part of X-Men lore, but he is a part of it. So to look back on this first story, see him jobbed out the way he is, it's kind of... Like, wow, that's underwhelming, <laughs> you know? But uh, that's, I guess that's kind of the hurdle that we have to uh, try to jump in reading this 60 years later. You know, reading it in 66 would be a totally different experience than reading it in, you know, 2021. So I guess take all of my criticisms with uh, a shaker or two of salt. So I guess I can pop right into my overall statement. <laughs> um, I had fun reading this. Uh, Calvin Rankin is just such a douchebag, and... Uh, He's someone you want to see get beat up, and we get to see him get beat up here, so that's a good thing. I don't have any complaints about Werner Roth's art here. Um, I feel like he did a really good job here, not 
so many scary, crazy, ugly faces. I think this was a really good showing from Roth. Um, you know, if I were to complain about anything having to do with the art, it would be the coloring, which uh, we'll blame that damn Forbush, right, for uh, the pink-faced Calvin Rankin. I don't know if that's supposed to, like, show off his fiery personality, or maybe he just has hay fever. Heck, maybe both. But uh, that's all I have to say about this issue, the Stan Lee Swan Song. Really looking forward to uh, the Roy Thomas stuff here because I feel like that's where we're really going to start weaving the web of continuity here. Um, I have scripted a couple of episodes ahead, so I do know that uh, Roy Thomas will be playing with um, X-Men continuity, as in you know bringing things that had previously appeared back into the forefront here, kind of giving us a cohesiveness here. A lot of the questions we've been asking about, like, hey, is this ever going to show up again? Or are they ever going to mention this again? And, well, under Roy Thomas, yes. <laughs> yes, they will for a lot of the things that we've been asking about. So hope you're looking forward to that. I know I am. It's uh, just going to be, uh, you know, no nothing to disparage the Stanley run here, but I feel like uh, a breath of fresh air uh, in a new voice is uh, is always welcome. And uh, I am looking forward to digging into that run uh just as deep as we dug into this one. So uh, we will do that next time. But for now, let's hop into the letters page. And we're going to kick things off with Dorothea in Ohio. Now she comes to Stan's aid regarding a letter that we covered a few episodes back, which took the man to task for his poor Latin usage when using terms like homo sapiens rather than homines sapientes. Now you see, Dorothea has two years of Latin schooling, with straight A's to boot, and in her experience, and also from the American College Dictionary, the term homo sapiens has never been used in the Latin plural and uh, could be applied to one or many. Now, I can't confirm nor deny, agree nor disagree, because I took six years of Spanish that I've almost completely forgotten instead of Latin. Now, Stan is pleased that he was right for once, and it's a sensation that he claims not to be used to. Dean in New York. Now, he wants clarification on the color of the X-Men's costumes, and this is one we've been seeing come up every now and again. He wants to know, are they black and yellow, or are they blue and yellow? He also wants to know how Cyclops was able to live before meeting Professor X, and he would like to see Scott and Jean hook up. So Stan says the costumes, that well, they're either black and yellow with blue highlights, or blue and yellow with black highlights, so that pretty much answers it. Regarding Scott's cursed optic beams, uh, Stan suggests that Psych just slept a lot as a kid, and thus didn't have to open his eyes all that often. Hmm. Well, Stan then gets serious and says that the X-Men's powers didn't manifest until adolescence, which I'm glad is becoming, you know, actually more, you know, canonically known. Uh, regarding the romance angle, he doesn't offer a whole heck of a lot. He suggests that Scott and Jean probably want to see that storyline continue and percolate as well. Next up, Ken in Colorado. He really dug X-Men number 16, and he says that he liked the uncredited colorist and also the attention to detail in the story. Howard in Illinois. Now, Howard is from Burma, visiting the United States. His mother's uncle is the Secretary General of the United Nations, Yu Thant. How about that? Uh, Yu Thant was the third ever Secretary General of the UN and served from 1961 to 1971. He was notable as the first non-Scandinavian to fill that role. He even has his own Wikipedia page and everything if you want to know more. Anyway, Howard discovered the Marvel mags during this visit, and he loves the X-Men and Fantastic Four. He plans on getting a subscription when he gets back home. 
Now, Stan hopes that you thought read some of the comics, because that would be Marvel's first step toward taking over the world. Next up, Dexter in Mississippi. Loved X-Men number 16. He calls Jay Gavin's work an improvement over Kirby. He's a fan of the new bullpen bulletins page, and hey, so are we. He's happy that Marvel are doing reprints with fantasy masterpieces, and he likes that Doctor Doom can keep warm in his new Incredible Hulk sweatshirt. So, uh, wow, this uh, this letter started off okay, and then kind of slipped into Marvel AI mode around the halfway point here. It's just uh, this is written by a Marvel robot. Uh, next up, Ricardo in Texas. Now, mm-hmm, who's ready for a hot take? Okay, not a very not current year hot take, right? Well, he loved the three-part Sentinel saga. So we get that out of the way first. But he thinks that the inclusion of a female on the team ruins everything. He considers Jean to be nothing more than a distraction. Huh, that'll, that'll, get, you, that'll get you taken off Twitter, won't it? Uh, anyway, Stan assures us that Jean is here to stay. Wayne in New York. Now, Wayne is a member of the Row chapter of Phi Kappa Tau at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Now, he challenges Stan Lee to include the lyrics, Hey you, get off my cloud, from uh, the Rolling Stones song, Get Off My Cloud, in an upcoming issue. Now, he thinks it would make sense for Angel, Thor, or Johnny Storm to be the one to belt it out. Well, Stan says, challenge accepted and accomplished, since he published this letter which has the line in it. He then makes fun of him for writing into the X-Men letters page without having any firm opinions about the X-Men. So, uh, word to the wise, at least mention the book you're writing into. Glenn in Maryland. Now, he loves the, quote, funny jokes in the letters page and suggests that Stan sell and or publish his jokes. Oi, with the uh, Marvel AI here. Um, He also wants to know who gets and reads the mail. Well, Stan says that Flo, his gal Friday, gets the mail and distributes it, which is to say she probably just opens it and hands it all to him since he writes everything anyway. Now, he is giddy giddy at the thought that someone thinks his jokes are funny. George in Minnesota. Now, this is more DeVries evolution talk, but uh, this time he comes to Stan's aid. And uh, I guess the Stan stands are really coming out of the woodwork here, and, uh, well, I, I kind of want to kill myself for saying Stan stands. If, if I ever do that again, please, someone find me and put me out of my misery. Uh, anyway, the DeVries talk is all well and good, but George mentions that it doesn't take into account mutations from... Atomic radiation, which is basically the angle we're taking with the X-Men's flavor of mutation. Now, Stan gives it the thumbs up, but says he's not going to comment on any of the DeVries stuff because he doesn't understand none of that anyway. Alan in Jersey. Now, he notes that Marvel mags sell out with the quickness, leaving only brand ugh books to stink up the racks. He says that last time out, there was zero Marvels left on the newsstand, so he brought a brand ugh book. And he thought it was terrible, lousy even. He says it was old-fashioned, boring, and corny. He says that he saw a brand ech book steal Stan's line of Nuff Said, which made him want to see the Avengers or Fantastic Four head across the street and destroy the distinguished competition. Well, Stan says, you know, hey, it's not worth the bother sending anybody over there to destroy them because brand ech is doing a good enough job destroying themselves as it is. So, uh, wow, same as it ever was, right? Now, don't get me wrong, I am a big DC Comics fan. They do have flashes of brilliance, but uh, more often than not, they're, uh, well, they're doing what they're doing now, which is not all that great. Anyway, Craig in Georgia calls the covered X-Men number 16 corny. 
says that uh, Iceman making like, a, a ladder or a staircase is, uh, is, is corny. Speaking of corniness, uh, our man Craig calls Stan out for well, playing a certain card twice in very close proximity here. This is uh, regarding Iceman being kind of taken aback at being called a man for the first time. We saw Cyclops call Iceman a man. Well, he, actually, in two lines he called him a boy and then he called him a man. Like, he's like, quiet boy, you're a man. It was very, very strange. But, turns out that Stan did like the same exact thing with the Human Torch right around the same time, so Craig calls him out on it. Craig continues the call-outs by saying the moral to X-Men number 16 was similar to that of Spider-Man number 20. And, uh, well, Stan doesn't really have much to say. At least not on the letters page, but if we flip over to the bullpen bulletins page, Stan's got a whole lot to say, so let's go ahead and do that now. We're going to start with the How About That department, where we find out that people love Marvel Collector's Item Classics, and Stan suggests that, hey, if this keeps up, it could go monthly. Next, in the Did You Know department, the National Observer did a write-up on comics in its October 11th, 1965 edition. It refers specifically to the Merry Marvel Marching Society as a sophisticated book club with chapters at such esteemed schools as Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Also, did you know that Marvel Comics is currently selling 33 million comics a year? That's a lot of books. Finally, did you know top radio DJs are chatting up their love of Marvel on the air? And this will be something we'll be talking about uh, more as we move forward here. A lot of, uh, a lot of radio DJs are, are getting in on the MMMS. Into the strictly personal department. Jack Kirby handed the Captain America pencils to John Romita. Bill Everett returns to Marvel in Tales to Astonish. Don Heck really likes his car. Stan Lee took his first weekend off in forever as he and his lovely blonde wife took a trip to Toronto. Now, Stan did take some time to belt out a few scripts on the train ride across the border. Irving Forbush, man or myth? Stan promises to tell soon enough. Maybe. Uh, Department of Utter Confusion. The 1965 Marvel annuals are just barely behind us, and it's already time to start planning for the 1966s. And Stan's got so many Marvel projects going, he can't even keep them straight. Finally, into the wrap-up, Stan welcomes all newcomers to the comics fandom and tells them to face front. The Merry Marvel Marching Society welcomes 26 new members, and our mighty Marvel checklist is as follows. Fantastic Four number 50 features more Silver Surfer, as well as Johnny's first day at college. Spider-Man number 36, Enter the Looter. Avengers number 27 uh, promises that surprising things are going to happen. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, Daredevil number 15, the Ox of the Enforcers is back. Thor 127, Odin needs help. Whose help? Probably Thor's. Uh, Strange 144, the Druid versus S.H.I.E.L.D. And Doctor Strange goes somewhere nobody's ever gone before. Suspense number 77, Iron Man vs. Ultimo, still... And a girl from Captain America's past. Astonish 79, Submariner versus the Behemoth. And Hulk versus Hercules. Well, I guess at least it's not Thor versus Hercules again. Sergeant Fury number 29, uh, all we get from that is Armageddon. Fantasy Masterpieces number 2 promises more Golden Age Marvel. And finally, Marvel Collector's Item Classics number 2 will feature early Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, and Ant-Man. Now, no advertisements really stood out to me this time out, so we will uh, 
we won't waste any time with those But uh, that is going to do it for this issue and for uh, this discussion Now if anybody out there would like to join in the discussion I would invite you to do so You could find me several different ways You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. And uh, I'm excited to announce that we've uh, finally started getting scam calls on the old hotline here. So, uh, hey, uh, to all the bots listening, uh, thank you, I guess, for helping me with my uh, pitiful numbers (laughs) and stuff. Um... Let's see, what else? Uh, for blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90s X-Men, or you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com for the entire archives. And if you're feeling generous, hey, maybe uh, share that link. You know, Maybe tell people where they could find uh, something that they, they might like. It'd really help the show, and uh, personally, it would really help me, especially as we rapidly approach the uh, one year of uh, daily podcasts and uh, the one-year anniversary of X-Lapse itself. But with all that said, I would like to thank you all so, so much for listening. It really does mean so much to me. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.